Welcome, fellow traveler. You are now listening to the Tent Theology Podcast. Each week, we have a tent talk where we pursue the renewing of the Christian social and political imagination. An obvious point of connection between modern forms of the Christian imagination and politics comes in the form of prophecy and the way a number of high-profile and not-so-high-profile self-styled prophets have been using their platforms and their speaking voice and their gifts to use their prophecy to talk about politics. Famously, there is no shortage of right-wing American Republican prophets who predicted a Trump win, and then there is no shortage of American right-wing Republican prophets who are now hastily trying to figure out what to do in the face of a Trump loss, including public apologies for their false prophecies, taking back their public apologies for their false prophecies, or doubling down on what they said and claiming that it's true in some way that we don't quite understand. It's true in the spiritual realm or some sort of nonsense like that. And then what you see on the other side, I suppose, would be people who then are talking about false prophets. So it's a very easy thing to say, you predicted something wrong, so you are a false prophet. What I would like to do with this session is to start to help us reimagine what is going on with prophecy and what a true prophet or a false prophet is. Because I don't think that a false prophet is a prophet that gets his predictions wrong. That's not where the false prophecy lies. The people who are giving you what your itching ears want to hear, they are the false prophets. Put it this way, you could be 100% in all your predictions and forthtellings and pronouncements from the front and still be a false prophet if you consistently use your voice and your platform to prop up people in power, to make the centers of power comfortable, and to increase the oppression and injustice in the land. That is what makes you a false prophet. False prophets are people who speak into the rooms where their friends are and only tell them what their friends already want to hear. False prophets are those who go to people and places of power and use their voice to reinforce the people in their places of power. This is where the false prophets show up in the Old Testament especially. The false prophets are the ones, the court prophets of the kings, who consistently speak to kings telling them how great they are and predicting victories for their side. The false prophets are the ones who are swayed by money or popular peer pressure to give the sorts of words that the people around them already believe and want to hear. This is what makes you false. Likewise, we have examples of prophetic utterances from people who get it wrong. I'm thinking of Agabus in the book of Acts, who makes a prophecy about Paul coming to a bad end in Jerusalem. It doesn't happen, and yet Agabus is not told to be a false prophet. You can get it wrong and be a true prophet. You can get it right and be a false one. I want to look at why this is the case in this episode. 
Now, I'm sure that this is true for all sides of the political spectrum. I'm sure that there are people who are really into radical lefty socialist politics who give radical lefty socialist prophecies. I'm sure that that is true. I have to say, in my experience, I've not been around those types of people. It's very rare in charismatic, prophetic type circles to find radical lefty socialists for reasons which we have been talking about over the last 25 episodes. So I'm not taking an absolute pot shot just at the right wingers here. But let's be honest, it's right wingers who tend to be speaking up the loudest about their prophecies. And notice how, what a mystery of the ages it is, that right wing Republicans tend to have right wing Republican prophecies. Nationalist Brits who can't wait for Brexit to happen, tend to have nationalist Brexit-related prophecies. People who vote Tory tend to have Tory prophecies. It happens all the time. And like I said, I'm sure it does happen on the other side, and I'm sure if I moved in different circles, I would start to notice that trend as well. So I'm not making an absolute blanket statement about conservatives here. But let's just be realistic. There was not a whole lot of prominent prophets predicting a Biden win. There was not a whole lot of charismatic prophets predicting that Trump would lose. Why is that? And I think what we're seeing is this idea that itching ears are hearing what itching ears want to hear. And I'm not saying that these charismatic prophets who are predicting Trump's win and doubling down on a Trump victory, are intentionally trying to manipulate or deceive. I'm not saying that the charismatic prophets who love Britons leaving the the European Union and are prophesying all sorts of glorious futures for Britain are deliberately trying to manipulate their crowd. But what is happening is the phenomenon known as confirmation bias. That we naturally feel things to be true that coincide with what we're told must be the case or should be the case in the cultures in which we're moving. And this does happen all the time. And what we find in these prophetic cultures is people who are feeling very strongly something about the way the world should be and mistaking their feeling for a word from the Lord. And I think they're doing it in all honesty with themselves. But I don't think they are true prophets as a result. This is because of the biblical tradition of prophecy as speaking truth to power. In the Hebrew scriptures, the prophet was not just the person who could tell the future. In fact, telling the future was rather looked down upon and seen as sorcery. The prophet has a political role, and that role is always as a counterweight or a counterbalance to the places of power and self-sufficiency. Think of King David. Think of the priests, the high priests. Think of the people who are in these positions of power and authority, who have perhaps grown complacent in their confirmation bias. They have adopted or believed in their own 
sufficiency and resources and power. They are the heads of institutions which are perpetuating injustice. And along comes a prophet. And that prophet speaks into these places of power and says, you think that you've got it all sorted. You think that you are working as an agent of God's will on the earth. You think that you are self-sufficient or that your temples or your courts or your armies are going to do everything for you that you want them to do. But I say to you, the Lord is not happy. You have let the widow and the foreigner go hungry. You have acted as if you were uncreated and you've forgotten your creator. You've lost your first love. You're all involved with sacrifices and the temple apparatus. But I tell you, I hate your sacrifices. Your worship is like ashes on your mouth. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Let justice roll on like a raging river. These are the kinds of words that the prophet has in the Old Testament. And the prophet was the figure that comes from the outside into courts and temples and places of power and reminds those people and places why they're there, what purpose they serve, and what they're really supposed to be doing with their life. They are not speaking into situations where people are cheering for them. If you're in a church or in some environment and somebody stands up and gives a prophecy and everyone applauds or nods approvingly, that's a pretty big clue that you're in the presence of a false prophet. But if you're in a situation where somebody stands up and says, I think I have a word from the Lord. And it makes the oppressed feel comfortable and the comfortable feel oppressed. Well, this is the beginning of what it might be to be in the presence of true prophecy. Prophecy in the Hebrew tradition speaks into places or it breaks into confirmed bias, self-sufficiency, institutionalized injustice. It doesn't affirm these things. It doesn't build on them. It doesn't encourage them. Prophecy in the Old Testament always assumes a sociopolitical system that has gone wrong. It always assumes that something has lost its way. A group of people or a system that has grown complacent or grown fat on its own success. And along comes the prophet. This is the clue that you're in the realm of good prophecy or true prophecy. And it doesn't have to do with predicting or forthtelling. And in fact, the forthtelling aspect of prophecy, which we might think of as like, woe to you or doom has come upon your house and those kinds of things. These aren't so much predictions of the future. They are descriptions of what happens when human beings don't act the way that human beings are supposed to act. This is a description of what happens when you choose the broad way that leads to destruction and not the narrow way that leads to life, right? I think of the Samuel who prophesies to the people. So think of the story of the kingship. Again, prophecy and politics are always connected. And we think of how the people of Israel want to have a king like other nations. 
And so they go to Samuel, who is their prophet, and they say, we want to have a king because we want to be like other nations. And Samuel says, okay, you want to have a king. Well, this king is going to tax you. He's going to take your money. He's going to take your children. He's going to take your women and put them into service. He's going to take your sons and put them into the army. He's going to always be at war with other kings. He's going to build for himself positions of power and authority that will turn against you. But if you want to have a king to be like other nations, you can have it. And along comes King Saul, and lo and behold, it sets into motion exactly the things that Samuel prophesied. But was Samuel predicting the future? Is that what makes him a true prophet? No. He's a true prophet because he's speaking into the Israelites who wanted to be like other nations. They wanted to have the power and the prestige and the military might that comes with being a kingly, war-making type nation. And Samuel speaks into that, and he does not give the itching ears what they want to hear. And he says, you want this, you're going to get it, and it's not going to be good. You're not going to be happy. And lo and behold, they weren't. And what is more, from then on, prophets are always assuming the role of speaking into or against the kings. And we think of Nathaniel and David, for example. Now, the Old Testament is not one document speaking with one voice. It's a collection of many different voices and many different documents spanning thousands of years of time. It is a conversation that the people of God are having with each other about each other. And one of the main strands or one of the main conversations happening in the Hebrew scriptures is this conversation between the prophets on one side and the priests and kings on the other. And the prophets are one strand of the Old Testament, which is always speaking into the places of priestly or kingly power. And it's always reminding them or recalling them to their first love or rebuking them. And it's significant that in the New Testament, which is essentially a series of footnotes on the Old Testament, every single page of the New Testament will quote or allude to or draw from material in the Hebrew Scriptures. And Jesus is very much a character who is being portrayed in a prophetic mold. And Jesus quotes the Hebrew Scriptures all the time. And he frames his ministry in light of the Hebrew scriptures all the time. And one of the things you have to know about Jesus is that every time he does quote the Hebrew scriptures or the things that he affirms in what we would now call the Old Testament, it's always the prophetic strand that he affirms. The conversation that Jesus takes a part of is the prophetic one. He offers his take on that age-old conflict between prophets and priests and kings, and he always sides with the prophets. Jesus' entire life is one that fits the prophet mold. He stays away from centers of power, deliberately. 
he goes into the wilderness to begin his ministry and he accepts John the Baptist's baptism. John the Baptist was also a wilderness prophet speaking against or into places of power from the outside. Jesus adopts and identifies himself with that ministry. He then wanders around the Judean Galilean countryside. He only goes to Jerusalem at key moments and at those times he's only going to Jerusalem in order to make public statements about power. Famously he will enter Jerusalem at the height of Passover in order to cleanse the temple whereas everyone in the crowd is expecting Jesus to storm the temple and kick out the foreigners. Jesus storms the temple and says this house should be a house of prayer for all nations. So Jesus doesn't enter the centers of power for purposes of gathering power for himself and controlling Jerusalem or the temple. He enters these contested spaces for the purpose of bringing another voice into the common culture, into the assumed and settled places, into the self-sufficiency uh, tribalistic or nationalistic groups who think that they are there for the purpose of gathering and hoarding their own resources to perpetuate their own institutions. And Jesus takes the prophetic approach. You think you are self-sufficient. You think you are here to further your own aims. But I tell you, you have forgotten the cause of the oppressed. You are letting the foreigner and the widow go hungry. Let justice roll, right? And of course, the iconic moment, Jesus goes to the synagogue and he unrolls the scroll and he reads from Isaiah that the bonds will be broken, the oppressed will be set free, the captives will be loosed. Today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is aligning himself with the prophetic voice and the prophet character. And he lives also the prophet's reward, which is that a prophet is not welcome in his hometown, which is that a prophet will be despised and rejected. Luke, in the Gospel of Luke, and then also in the book of Acts, spends a lot of time detailing Jesus as a prophet like Moses, one like Moses. And Moses is considered to be a prophet in the Luke-Acts narrative because Moses is the one bringing God's word to a group of people who have been doing it themselves or going it their own way. And he's always speaking this, providing God's law into this situation. And then Moses is also rejected by his own people. And Luke wants us to remember that aspect of Moses, how he's always being grumbled against or he's always being fought against by his own people. That's what it means that Jesus is one like the prophet Moses. Of course, Moses himself gives way to the whole priestly, kingly tradition. So the, the sorts of activities that Moses is associated with, the law, sacrifice, purity, ethnic, religious purity, these are the things that themselves need to be redeemed by the prophetic voice as well. So it's like an endless cycle of establishment of institution and then prophetic voice renewing that institution or coming into it and again jesus is that voice he is that person in the new testament 
And one of the things that Jesus is most prophetic about is his refusal to follow the patterns of the, the way of the world that is expected of him. He and his followers do not act the way that you should act if your goal was to preserve and prolong the heritage that you were born into or the institutions that you are responsible for. So Jesus and his movement is a whole prophetic act against establishment and institutionalization of common sense and common morality. He's also very much in his uh, stand against violence or the way that he rules, which is a refusal to beat the bullies by being an even bigger bully, his refusal to fight evil with evil. This itself is part of the prophetic act where Jesus is showing himself to be a king unlike all the other kings. If we remember that Israel's ground zero sin, as it were, was they wanted to have a king so they could be like other nations. And that sets in motion the whole corruption, the whole beginning and the institutionalization of rebellion. Organized rebellion against the way of the Lord comes when you want to be a nation like other nations. So the story of the New Testament eventually ends up with the redemption of the nations. It ends, as we've mentioned in other episodes, with the book of Revelation, where the fate of the nations is a big deal. And Jesus is seen to be the ruler of the nations. He is a king. In the Gospels, of course, he's called King Jesus all the time. Jesus the Messiah means Jesus God's anointed one, which is another way of saying God's king. And the kingship element really comes to the fore in the book of Revelation, where we see all of the enemies ranged against King Jesus. And the enemies are all portrayed as nations and empires and rulers of empires. So rival kings. So the rivalry here is between the kingship of Jesus and the kingship of the men or the kingship of the world, which, by the way, is under thrall to the prince of darkness or to Satan. So it's the kingdom of God versus the kingdoms of Satan, which are associated with the rule of men. So even Jesus the king is in fact a prophetic alternative to the forms of life and inherited ways uh, of being that the world naturally assumes is what one must do to uh, be in power. And Jesus's approach to these things is itself seen as being prophetic. Now, if you spend any time in charismatic circles at all, it won't be long before somebody says to you, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, which comes from Revelation 19, verse 10. And this is often trotted out. This is a verse, a favorite verse amongst charismatics who love the prophetic. And they usually link it. It's always linked to testimony of Jesus. So if we tell the story of what Jesus did for us, that is where prophecy is. And they are linking it to where a little bit like if you can say it, then it will happen. If you can articulate it and put your story out into the world, then by saying it, you will start to shape reality. That by sharing your testimony of what Jesus did for you, or what he gave you, or what money you got, or what new car you got, then that will be the spirit of prophecy. 
and I often hear this verse in the circles that I've been in, they are directly linking it to things like, I prayed for a car and I got a car. So I'm going to share this testimony to make it true for you as well. Or I prayed for healing and I got healing. So I'm going to share this testimony. And this is the spirit of prophecy. So it's this idea that what you put out into the world is what you will receive. And this is called, according to these circles, the testimony of Jesus. But of course, this is not what's going on. People who talk about Revelation 19 verse 10 pay no attention to the rest of the book of Revelation or indeed to any of the things that might actually count as the testimony of Jesus. Let's start at Revelation chapter 19 and see what happens if we read it the way that it was actually written. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, heaven being, remember, the place where God's reign is unopposed. I heard a great multitude in the place where God's reign is unopposed saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor belong and power belong to the Lord our God. So rule and honor and uh, right worship belong and power belong to the Lord. For true and righteous are his judgments as opposed to the judgments of man, which are false and evil, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. This is the allusion to Babylon as the prostitute. And Babylon, of course, is the great stand-in for any organized empire which sets itself up against the reign of God. So we have the kingdom of God, or heaven, where God's reign is unopposed, and the kingdoms of man, which are organized rebellion against the way of God, who the book of Revelation describes as the beast, or the great harlot, who corrupts the earth with her fornication. And by the way, in the book of Revelation, this fornication is directly linked not only to sexual practices, but actually very much so to 